philosophy is inseparable from atheism. There is not one meaning of atheism, there are multiple epochs of atheism. Each atheism is discontinuous and incommensurable and must be understood on its own terms. There is no essence of atheism in which these different variations could be conceptualized into a unity. In the history of Western philosophy, there are three epochs of atheism. There is the atheism of being, the atheism of morality, and the atheism of the word. I will be speaking to you today about the atheism of the word, but I will briefly explain the other atheisms before I do so. The atheism of being is that we no longer require the existence of God as a supreme being to explain the intelligibility of the universe. This epoch ends with Kant. There are no philosophical arguments justifying the existence of God. Kant replaces the God of reason with a moral God of faith. Without the rational belief in the moral idea of God, Kant says, we would fall into moral despair at the face, in the face of the meaninglessness of the universe. It is this idea of the moral God that is the object of Nietzsche's critique. He is no more interested in proving that God does not exist than Kant is in proving that he does. What matters here is whether the moral idea of God is necessary to our existence. Rather than sustaining life, the moral idea of God says no to life. It is not the answer to nihilism, Nietzsche says, but its last form. What then is the atheism of the word? If it is not the atheism of being, nor the atheism of morality. To explain the difference, we need to turn to Rosenzweig and Levinas. For both of them, God is not a being, nor an idea, but a proper name. A proper name, as Kripke tells us, is not a description. Aristotle would still be Aristotle's name, even if he had not taught Alexander. A proper name, to use Kripke's formulation, is a rigid designator, which bestows a name on someone in an original act of baptism in a community of speakers. What would the atheism of a proper name be? I would like to suggest it would be Blanchot's neuter. I will explain the neuter through the narrative category of free, indirect discourse. 
So, on the one hand, there is the theism of the proper name. And on the other, the atheism of free, indirect discourse. Such an atheism is an entirely different event than the atheism of being or morality. What does it mean to say that the word God is a proper name? In Rosenzweig's Star of Redemption, God is revealed through speech. God addresses me and I respond. God does not speak as a being or as an idea, but as someone with a proper name. God addresses me as an individual and I respond as one too. I respond not as an I as a concept, but as a me who is addressed by another. Rosenzweig, in his philosophy of language, which he calls Sprachgedenken, makes a crucial distinction between speaking about something and speaking to someone. God as a being or as an idea is a speaking about God. And as we have seen, each has its correlative atheism. But speaking about God and speaking to God are not the same. So these atheisms are no longer relevant. Or if they are, then only as a preparation to an adequate understanding of God as a proper name. As Levinas writes in Totality Infinity, monotheism is atheism. It is an atheism of being and morality. This bit I wrote upside down, I don't know why. <laughs> Those of you who have read Totality and Infinity will recognize, will recognize Rosenzweig's speech as revelation as the model of the ethical relation. The difference between them is that the relation to God is first for Rosenzweig and ethics second. For Levinas, it is the other way round. And this makes him unique in the Jewish tradition. This is when I confuse myself. Do I go that way? I do. Those of you who know classical Hebrews, that was a very subtle joke about classical Hebrews. <laughs> Yet for both, speaking about and speaking to God are distinct, and God is a proper name. This is clear in their accounts there are similar accounts of the prohibition against pronouncing the name God in Judaism. What is written and what is pronounced are not the same. What is written is the tetragrammaton, yod, hey, vav, hey. What is written, what is pronounced, sorry, is Adonai. They both explain that the purpose of this ritual is to remind the observant Jew that the word God is not a being, nor an idea, but a proper name. And that this ritual can only be performed in speech. Yet, as Stefan Moses remarks, nowhere in Rosenzweig's writing does God speak to us 
directly. God's speech is always reported speech. Vayomer is how most of the biblical texts begin, and God said. God's speech is always reported speech of the written word. Derrida too reminds us that the prohibition against pronouncing the proper name of God can only be marked in writing. Is writing then the clue to the atheism of the word? Not if this is merely a distinction between two kinds of communication, but the generality of language. I will explain this through free indirect discourse. Excuse me. The increasing use of free indirect discourse in literature arises with the modern novel. In direct speech, I am speaking to you as I am now. In indirect speech or reported speech, you tell some third person what I have said. In both cases, who is speaking, what is said, who is spoken to are distinct. This is not so with free indirect discourse, where the different voices of the narrator and the characters become increasingly blurred until the narrator, narrator vanishes completely. Who is speaking in Kafka's novels? Is it Kafka? Is it the narrator? Or is it the characters? Or finally, is it no one at all? Take, for example, the famous opening of the trial, where someone has been telling lies about Joseph K. Is this the voice of the narrator or the narrated monologue of Joseph K? This ambiguity lies at the heart of free indirect discourse, and we are so used to it that we barely notice it at all. In his essay, The Narrative Voice, Blanchot gives a brief history of free indirect discourse. He writes that at the beginning of the writing of the novel, the narrator's voice is separate from the narrated events and the characters, and would comment on them directly to the reader. As novelists experimented with this form, the narrated voice, the narrative voice, and the narrated monologues of the characters intermingled and became indistinct. Nonetheless, the narrator's voice would occasionally emerge to ironically comment on this artifice. Only with the late modern novel does the narrator's voice, as a distinct voice, disappear. Blanchot describes it as the shift from writing in the first person to the third. The first 50 pages of the manuscript of Kafka's The Castle, for example, was written in the first person. Then Kafka changes into writing in the third person, 
and meticulously goes through the manuscript and crosses out, so to speak, all the I's and replaces them with he's. If Blanchot were merely explaining how narrative works, then this would just be another inter interesting contribution to the theory of the novel. Free indirect discourse is not just one type of communication that can be distinguished from others, but a clue to the generality of language. After describing Kafka's change in pronouns, Blanchot adds that it's not sufficient only to understand this as a stylistic change, but as the exposure of the writer to a language no one speaks and is addressed to nobody. Before that I speak, there is, the, there is a language, there is language, sorry, of which the subject would be a product and not its origin. Vlozinov, in his book, The Marxist Philosophy of Language, bemoans linguistics for forgetting the social origin of language in everyday conversation. Nonetheless, at the end of his book, he attacks the growing encroachment of free indirect discourse in all of us where we increasingly cease to take responsibility for what we say. This mirrors Heidegger's lament in Being in Time. We do not speak in our own voice, but the voices of others we have read. Why not take what Vlozinov and Heidegger deplore and turn it around as the source of language? As though inner speech had its origin in the indistinct voices of others without proper names, fates, or common destiny. Now, and you'll be glad of this, now we can answer the question, what would an atheism of the word be? It is not an ontological or moral skepticism, but a linguistic one. The narrated self is not a special case, but a general one, because inner speech has its origin in the social milieu of the anonymity of language. This anonymity should not be confused with the abstract objectivity of language that linguistic studies. The system of language is the result of the becoming of language frozen into a monument. If we remember, Kripke explains the origin of the fixity of, the prop of proper names in the act of an original baptism passed down through a community of speakers. Kripke still understands language through the primacy of intention. A name can be lost or drift away because the causal chain is broken. This might not be because we no longer attend a word, but a general effect of language. Rosenzweig 
Rosenspike and Levinas talk about the name of God in terms of the rituals of Judaism. This is why it is not a philosophical concept. They are rituals of remembering because everywhere and always we are menaced by the forgetting of language beyond any intention. From the side of a community of speakers, it is a disaster. But from another perspective, it is the anarchic creativity of language itself. We are all words, nothing but words. The atheism of the word inhabits the theism of the proper name from within. It is not so surprising that Levinas, in his essay, God and Philosophy, will say that the transcendence of God, as he sees it, is barely, barely distinguishable from the there is of language. Thank you.